Now entering Nerdist.com. The ATX Television Festival is always a wonderful experience, and Season 6, which was held June 8th through 11th this year, 2017, was no exception. As usual, Austin was the place to be for TV fans who got panels and programming of current series like The Americans, Bajillion Dollar Properties, and The Mick, reunions of Northern Exposure, Battlestar Galactica, the shows of Linda Bloodworth Thomason, and others, and panels on topics ranging from first gigs and big breaks to TV under Trump. I'm going to bring you recordings of a whole lot of these panels, and today's episode is one of them. ATX itself is putting up video of many of the events, and you can find those at atelevisionexperience.com. They'll also soon offer podcasts, both ones you'll find here and recordings exclusive to the ATX podcast feed at atelevisionexperience.com slash podcasts. Check that out in the coming months. In the meantime, first of all, go get tickets to Season 7 of the ATX Television Festival. It's June 7th through 10th, 2018. And as usual, it'll be a special TV experience. And now, enjoy today's episode. I'm Natalie Abrams, senior writer at Entertainment Weekly, and I don't know about you, but I love a good mystery. Every clue a TV show drops is like a puzzle piece that will eventually show us the bigger picture. Uh, But with live TV discussions on Twitter and fans dissecting basically every frame on Reddit, it's getting harder and harder these days for bigger mysteries to remain unspoiled. Uh, How has that changed the creative process? Well, let's find out. From Royal Pains and uh, CBS New Drama Instinct, Michael Rauch. From Alias, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Fringe, Monica Owusu-Breen. From Lost, The Middleman, and The Hundred, Javier Grillo Marks Watch. And executive editor at IGN, Eric Goldman. Okay, so let's jump straight into it. Now that fans are figuring out shows' mysteries basically quicker than ever these days, uh, how has that changed or affected the creative process? <laughs> that's, a, that's a very big question. Um, I, I like to pretend they don't. To be perfectly honest, I like to live in a bubble where letting the stories tell themselves and then I'll engage, but there's kind of a purity in writing for me that I feel like if you're trying to outsmart everyone, then you're kind of not in the story. So. You know, it's, it's either aliens, magic... Or time travel. So, I mean, they're going to guess it, you know. I mean, it's, and, and, you know, it, I, so, I, so I went in to meet on this show um, that was, uh, well, I'm not going to say the name of the network, but their initials were AMC. And, uh, <laughs> and I go meet with the showrunners, and it was a show about aliens, so it was aliens. And, um, and, and I go in, and, and, and I'm like, so guys, what's the long-term plan? And they said to me, well, you worked on Lost, you tell us. And I'm like... <laughs> First of all, fuck you, pay me. Uh, and second, uh, no, you got to like figure it out because it's going to be either magic, aliens, or you know, time travel. And 
the, and somebody will guess it, and the, the, the thing isn't to keep a step ahead of your audience, the thing is to, even the ones who guess it, to think that you pulled it off better than anybody else ever has. So, so you know, by and large, if you've got a great plan, you stick with the plan, and you try to make the plan, you know, you, you, if, first of all, you, sh you, you write these, and then you shoot them six weeks later, and then they air two months later, so really, there's not a whole lot you can do if somebody figures it out, you just have to make sure that, like, the journey is so good that the ones who figured it out forget they figured it out. I'm a little embarrassed to say I didn't hear the question. And I was, I was trying to figure out from those two answers exactly what it was, but I am not going to fake it. So, Well, Michael, for you, you're, you're going to be launching a show in an era that you know, people figure out the mysteries you know, so, so fast. Uh, his new show, Instinct, on CBS. It is screening tomorrow, uh, Sunday. Please come. <laughs> yes. Um, so do you, you know, it's just about the creative process. Like, do you feel yourself going into that process differently, knowing how quick the audience is? Uh, I do. I, I have never done a police show before. Um, and I just finished a medical show and had never done a medical show before. And began uh, by hiring people with medical experience on Royal Pains and had very little interest in medical shows, hadn't really watched any but learned the rules of them and was much more uh, creatively invested in the characters and relationships. And so I'm kind of following a similar thing on Instinct, which is I've hired some people, uh, some terrific writers with a lot of crime procedural background, but we're really starting the room talking much more about the character, the dynamics, those arcs, and trying to find a way, as Javier said, to, you know, we're gonna be telling stories where someone does something and our heroes are gonna find out who did it and they're gonna put them away. And everyone knows that's gonna happen pretty much every episode of the show. So it's gonna be through making the characters feel new and different, the dynamics feel new and different, that hopefully we'll be able to have our misleads and our twists and turns so the audience doesn't always see it coming before it happens. Yeah. Uh, now from the flip side, Eric, uh, you're a pretty keen reporter when it comes to figuring <laughs> out mysteries. So, <laughs> um, so um, do you ever find yourself maybe not writing a theory because you sort of worry that it's you know, actually going to come true? Or do you think like everything is fair game now? It's funny because I've been actually thinking about this a lot in the past year and kind of changing my stance a little bit in that I used to feel very much if I'm like writing weekly reviews of a TV show that I would share my own theories. And I try to avoid like reading everyone else's, you know, but just if I'm thinking like, I feel like this guy could be the killer. Like, why wouldn't I share that? Because it's hard to be reactive without part of that. But more and more, I even see some of the readers be like, I don't want to know that theory. I don't want to know your theory because if you're right, you're spoiling it, which is such a weird line, right? It's like, what's the, you know, what's the, what's the difference between like, I'm just saying what I think might happen and like putting it into someone's inception and putting it into someone's mind that now it's all they can think about. So, so I'm sort of starting to lean towards, I at least put like a, possible spoiler warning like my theory if it's right you know and I try to I'm trying to put that a little more because some people don't want to know the theories at all even though a lot want to share their theories so Monica alias was pre-twitter years yes so do you think that made it a bit easier to keep secrets yes <laughs> for sure no it, I mean it's I remember because I was thinking about this it used to take weeks to know what people thought of the story it used to take a long time to realize, oh, this is gelling with the audience or it's not. And now it's like, it's hard not to give in to the temptation, even before a show premieres, to check in on what people think about it. And so, yeah, it really does, because I feel like sometimes, you know, um, 
we're so used to wanting answers. And this is something that Twitter's very good at, like speculating, thinking about, trying to conceive. And it's funny, I was just watching a show with my, my 12-year-old, and he's constantly trying to figure out what's happening on Steven Universe. And I'm like, <laughs> Kai, enjoy the journey. <laughs> Let's stop thinking about what's next and like this episode, because it's awesome. Um, but it's interesting because I think there's a different way of watching, because it is engaging and it is immediate, and you can put your wor words out in the community and someone answers you, so it's kind of a conversation across the internet, that I don't think there's any way to stop it, but it's interesting seeing the switch. Yeah. Well, let's get into that a little bit. Do you see this obsessive sort of conversation as a good thing or a bad thing? Like, is any press good press? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, look, uh, uh, I think if you look at uh, the totality of television, television writers before, you know, the internet, they're all going, no one, no one knows us, no one understands us, no one, we're not, why are the actors the celebrities and now we're the celebrities and we're going to complain about that? I think not. <laughs> Hello. I mean, like, like, as somebody actually said to me that I was a celebrity the other day, I was like, that's ridiculous, look at me. Um, so... <laughs> So the idea that, that all of a sudden we, we have gotten the attention we crave and now we're going to complain about it, I think is a little bit disingenuous. I mean, look, Twitter, you know, like literally you can go on Twitter and it's like somebody opens up the spigot of validation in the form of a massive national conversation about your show and then you're going to pretend like you're, like you're too sensitive a flower for that. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, as, as influential as Twitter is, I mean, it apparently is the instrument of public policy for our government now. <laughs> Which is weird, because the people who run Twitter still don't know how to monetize it, and I'm like, guys. <laughs> but uh, I, that's for the Google Fiber people, you know. Uh, but anyway, so, so honestly, like, like, you can't, you know, like, like, you can't have the celebrity and the validation and the, the, and the, the fix, the good dopamine fix of going online and be talked about where, as you've always wanted to in your life, and don't bullshit me and tell me you didn't, and that's not why you became a writer, because you're lying. Um, <laughs> And then pretend like, like somehow it's detrimental to your creative process. If it's detrimental to your creative process, turn it off. Do you agree with that, Michael? It's a tough act to follow, Javier. <laughs> <laughs> I want some stand-up material. Um, I, I agree with it in principle, absolutely. I mean, I think that you know, it, it affects different people differently. I think for some younger writers, who have written an episode, and maybe it's their first episode that they've written that's gotten produced, and they go online to read about it, and people, anonymous people comment on it and you know, say mean things. I think it can have a really deleterious effect on their confidence and how they feel about themselves as a writer. And so it's very dangerous for that reason. Um, you know, I think that there are people who want to be on Twitter and love Twitter and love the comments and love... I mean, I just met at the last panel I just finished a half hour ago, a woman came up to me and introduced herself and said, thank you so much for Royal Pains. Um, and we chatted for a minute and then she told me her name. And she's a woman who has been of probably two or three of the most loyal fans of the show from the beginning, who I never met, who tweeted about every episode and you know would ask questions. And so it was an incredible opportunity to talk to her and to thank her for her support over all the years. At the same time, you know, I had an actor on the show who, in season one, went on, I think it was Twitter, some social media thing, and started reading about his character, and came to me completely ashen face, and, you know, was horrified and said, they hate me, everybody hates me, 
and you know, had to say, do not ever read the comments. Like, stay away. And it's different when you're an actor and it's you in front of the camera. So I think that, you know, I think it's a mixed bag. Uh, it's helpful in some ways to be able to feel, hear what people are thinking, what they like and they don't like, but I think it can be damaging because people can be mean. Yeah. I think the topic of this panel was never more prevalent than this season than with a show like Westworld, where people were figuring out the mysteries within the second episode yeah. uh, going into the season. On the flip side, you had a show like The Good Place, which was successfully able to surprise fans with a mm-hmm. big twist uh, to its premise uh, this past season. Do you, think, uh, do you think that was because fans were not looking for a twist? Like, is it almost easier in that way to, to get away with the mystery if you Completely. don't tip your hand at all? Completely. I hate when people tell me, oh, there's a great twist. Because now I'm looking for a twist, and now I know there's a twist. And if I'm not looking for the twist, it'll actually be a twist. So I do feel like on some, some genres, you don't expect it, and then when it happens, it's really satisfying. On a show like Westworld, I mean, that show, there's no way you can stop thinking about what's going on. Like, that's the question of the show. That's the premise, is what is this world? What's really happening here? So it's begging for, you know... Theorizing. All right, real talk. <laughs> yes. All right, real talk. Real talk. Yes. Mary Shelley invented science fiction about 300 years ago uh, during like a week stay in Italy to try to avoid having a like a threesome with Byron and Percy, right? <laughs> and what was that founding novel of the genre Frankenstein about an automaton that turns on its creator, right? And then the first time that the word robot was ever used publicly was in a play that was written in the 1920s by Carol Chapek called Rossum's Universal Robots about a revolt in a robot factory, okay? So you're telling me that you watch Westworld and you think that, you're not, that, you're, that someone's not gonna figure that out? <laughs> Um, I mean, so I mean, I, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. It's like, it's like, the, I mean, if, if 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 anything, it's probably a testament yes. to them having done their job really well. That people are like, oh my god, I wonder what the big twist is. I'm like, yeah, the robots are going to revolt against their masters, guys. <laughs> but, Spoiler alert! But right know? there, that's what you think. That's what you go into the season thinking. That's what's going to be the twist, and yet that was not the twist. Did you watch the season? It was. <laughs> And I do think, you know, like with Westworld, um, you know, uh, if, if taking what Natalie said about me being a keen viewer, uh, I, I, it's, I can't tell. When would I have figured out? I'll, I'll dodge around the, the twist that people are talking about, the character twist. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I would have figured it out at some point, but I couldn't avoid from episode two online people shouting this is what I think is the theory, and that's what's the weird part, is that it's like, uh, because the crowdsourcing of theories yeah. gets kind of crazy as far as, uh, it's not just talking to your buddy about, hey, you watch Westworld, I have a theory, it's, you know, Twitter and the internet and people bouncing all these theories, so it, it became, you know, one or two savvy people kind of guessing that twist from the instant it was introduced, and I don't think it was, like, super obvious the second episode two aired, it's just, once it was put in people's mind, they couldn't turn it off, you know, you're thinking about it. So, I, I, you know, because you were talking about everybody's looking for the mysteries now, what is that process like of trying to balance mystery with also digestible storytelling? Is that can, difficult? Can you unpack digestible, like, in terms of... Just in terms of, like, a story with heart, something that isn't necessarily a puzzle, something that's straightforward. How do you find that balance? And is it difficult when you know fans are looking for the mystery? You know, um, on something like Lost, the, the things that developed first uh, and, and most actively during the period that we worked on 
you know, like we all sat down and the mysteries were kind of told to us what they were going to be, you know, um, in some degree. And they developed and they changed and all of that over the course of at least the two years that I was there. And I'm told the show did pretty well afterwards. Um, <laughs> but what we really drilled down on was the character backstories, which eventually became the flashbacks, you know, because as was my point with Westworld, whether it is or it isn't, or whether someone is an android or not, or whether someone's an android who's been there 100 years before they were an android and then they turn into it, all of that stuff, it's like that's all sort of an ornament on, on, a, on, on something that you need that's a little bit more um, important, which is are the people who are watching the show going to hook into these characters and care whether they're a robot or not and care whether they revolt or not and care whether there's a train to a larger Westworld or a smaller Westworld or a, or a Southworld or whatever the hell it is, you know? Um, without that, there's nothing. So on, on Lost, you know, the pilot was written and it was, very, uh, the, it was a very existential pilot in that you only learned about the characters based on how they reacted to that situation in real time. And we found this challenge of, okay, now that we know that these characters are in a really compelling situation, how do we take it beyond how they react to the challenges in real time to kind of who they are? And we spent a great deal of time working on that. And I think that ultimately, the reason why we succeeded were, say, um, you know, the, the, the show about the hurricane in Florida or, or the show about the event or the show about, you know, all of the shows that followed, which were focusing on, oh, we're going to create a compelling mystery that we're just going to keep stringing along for episode after episode, is that, uh, is that at the end of the day, we came on the, uh, upon the idea that if we flash back to these people's lives, we'd see how they were reinventing themselves yeah. on the desert island. And I think that's why the first season especially was so compelling yeah. and why it got us what it got us. It was that people cared about who Jack sure. really was and what his issues were his daddy issues were. <laughs> no, I do think... Jack had daddy issues? <laughs> so did his daddy. No, and I, I do feel like one of the things I always rely on is humans are endlessly fascinating and surprising and weird. And so if you focus on the human story, you'll always find surprises in that story, but if the story is all about one twist... Like Javi said, it's not, it's just not going to be satisfying. Because, I mean, TV, you have to like the characters. You have to want to spend week after week after week with them. And if you don't, no amount of twist is going to make you want to turn in every day, every week. Yeah. And uh, I'm curious about the balance between misdirection and deception when you are trying to get the audience to look the other way versus actually lying to them. Michael, you want to touch on that? Uh, I would be a much bigger supporter of misdirection than deception. I mean, I, I don't like when I feel cheated as an audience member. I don't like when I can go back and say, wait a second, that was never planted, or you guys said something else to intentionally mislead me, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to have it be part of the storytelling. So I think for us, it's always about trying to find a misdirect, trying to find something that's a red herring that will take the audience in a direction while we're doing something else, as opposed to coming out and lying to them, or not setting up who the bad guy is. You know, all of a sudden in Act 4, for the first time you meet who the bad guy is and then you have the Scooby-Doo explanation afterwards, having to go backwards feels a little bit like a cheat. So as you go through the season uh, in creating or even in covering, uh, do you almost have to sort of be willing to throw out the answer to any mystery should fans figure it out early? That's a little scary, actually. I mean, I gotta... Like, it's just because you, you craft the story for multiple characters in an arc across multiple characters and if there's just that mystery that then you're gonna I feel like you're just gonna end up cheating the whole season also you know look a show's life 
goes far beyond the initial conversation. You know, uh, one of my favorite things about the streaming services is that, you know, you go on that home screen and there's just a river of content, you know, and, and it's like you get things like Mad Men and you get things like the Twilight Zone and the great things and then you get like the, you know, Sharknado movies and, you know, and, and it's all just, and they all occupy the same space. That postage stamp is the same size for everyone. Um, and after your show has aired, after you've won awards or failed, that show will be out there for someone to find and someone's going to have that journey whether they were on Twitter the week it opened or not. And you know, your, your, your duty as a, as, as a narrative storyteller is not to, to, to play this shell game with your immediate audience, it is to create something that has resonance for the entirety of its existence, which now in the case of television shows is going to be there until you know, like there's an apocalypse and the cloud falls from the sky. <laughs> you know? so, so honestly, um, who, you, know, the, you, you have to ask yourself, take a real fearless moral inventory of who am I writing this for? Am I writing this so I can like hang out with, say, you know, which the 10,000 people on Twitter who are figuring out your show are still an infinitesimal fraction. Even, the, even a, a very poorly watched show, you're talking about, you know, viewers in, you know, over a million viewers. You're talking about a small percentage. So, so why would you throw out the entire airframe of your production uh, in order to appease the, the, the version of it that's treating it like a real-time alternate reality game? Also, I think, uh, and I'm talking to someone who doesn't make a TV show, but as a viewer, uh, like Westworld's a good example, which is a show I really like, but by the time the finale was airing, yeah, it was a little scary being like, oh, they're going towards this reveal that seems at this point fairly obvious to a lot of the audience, and will that fall flat? But thankfully, in the finale, which was an extra-long episode, I think the character reveal, Dancing Around, was like 20 minutes into an extra-long episode. So the onus wasn't on that. It wasn't like that was the, the cliffhanger. Oh, my God. There was still more story to tell. There was still, you know... It, depth to what was going on with the other characters, so you didn't, it wasn't only on that reveal, and I think, you know, a great show isn't only going to be about one single reveal anyway. Yeah, another example that for me was, I don't know uh, if anyone watched Big Little Lies, mm -hmm. but, you know, I, there were, stylistically, the device of the interviews became such a repetitive thing that it felt like it was building to this giant reveal, and I really liked the show. I loved the direction. I thought the acting was great. Um, I enjoyed every episode. I found the reveal that it built up to a little bit of a letdown, a little disappointing, but, but I, it didn't ruin my enjoyment of the show because I loved everything about it. And, and to your point, the letdown was, you know, it was a small part of that episode and everything around it worked so well for me yeah. that you can't get everything right all the time or it's very, very hard to. And I you know, finished that series really enjoying it and... and and being able to appreciate everything they accomplished as opposed to the one thing that felt like it wasn't as satisfying as it could have been. Eric, you've been a reporter for a, a long time. Um, huh. Do you notice shows maybe answering questions quicker to try to stay ahead of the audience? Yes and no. I mean, I think there is just this sort of bigger notice of this happening, you know? But I mean, it's funny because I go back even, I remember several years ago when like Dexter season six had a big reveal that was definitely being crowdsourced before they got there. And I don't think it's stopping people completely. I think it is more about that, um, what we were just talking about, making sure your story isn't only predicated on that reveal. Uh, because if people guess that one part, 
then that's okay because there, there's more to it than that. Although going back to something you said earlier, I do think that shows that don't make you even think there will be twists or turns can really get a lot of power out of that, like The Good Place, you know, where it's just like, oh, I didn't see this coming because I wasn't even looking for anything coming, you know? I mean, even, I'm gonna go way back now, but it's like when I think back when I was a kid and some like shocking desk people brought up at the time, like LA Law and 30-something, mm -hmm. where because they were on yeah. LA Law and 30-something, <laughs> it wasn't well. Game of Thrones or The Walking Dead or The 100 where you're kind of <laughs> playing a game of who dies next. It was like, <laughs> you know, it, in the middle of it, it just someone died and that made it all the more uh, like, oh my God, I can't believe that happened. Uh, do you guys, be honest, do you scour the internet to check to see if people are figuring out the mysteries on your shows? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but... I, I, do, I don't. Um, I, 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 yeah, sorry. No, no. I do, and I'm working on it not doing that anymore. I'm talking to my therapist and really struggling to create boundaries on my own, like crazy surveying of my own stuff, because that's weird, and it leads to nothing good. So, there you go. I, I, I disagree. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't disagree for you. I think for you, yes. that's, that's the right yeah. thing. But it's I, a good boundary for I, me. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and look, I think that, you know, I, I have become very comfortable on social media. I have been through hell on social media more than once, and, and it's just kind of become like, a thing that I do, it's part of my everyday life and it's just sort of there and you know, the, the, the thing is, what you're doing, what you're saying, the way that I relate to it, it's like you do have to, you, it's not that, that maybe you should or, sh whether you should or shouldn't be on social media is not a moral absolute, you know? Right. Having a healthy relationship to it is a moral absolute, I think, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's more, you know, that's, it's, it's like, like anything else in life, it can take a dangerous and detrimental role in your life if you let it, and, or if not, you like deal with it by not going in it, by going in certain, you know, that sort of thing. I'm curious though, Michael, why? Why are you not looking? I just have never found um, it particularly helpful in a comprehensive way. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I tweeted a lot for Royal Pains when it was happening, and had, for the most part, people who love the show, and occasionally people who were angry about things. Um, and it was always interesting to read, but I never found that it affected what I wanted to do in the writer's room or what I wanted to do on set. And so oftentimes I felt like I was spending more time reading it than I was actually working. And so for me, and I agree with Javier, I think it's a very subjective thing. I think we obviously all are different people. We operate differently. We, we get our ideas from different places. We let off steam in different ways. For me, it became almost an escape in a bad way from wanting to be productive in a, in a way I wanted to. And I think incredible things can happen in social media. Um, it just for the work that I'm doing and the type of shows I'm doing, and I'm not doing shows where there are these type of issues where like there's a giant twist that the audience is guessing. I've never done anything like that. So I'm speaking much more from an episodic way of week in and week out. And it just seems a little bit less important in that world. Um, usually writers' rooms are pretty far ahead of the audience. You guys are already shooting several episodes ahead, but have there, have you guys been, ever been inspired by some of the theories you were seeing online? I've, the, the things that I've really responded to from online is when there's been a, uh, a almost un, unanimous sense of disliking something, and mostly a character. So um, with the story I told before about the actor, he came back like in tears because everyone hated him. 
it was a wake-up call to us too, and we were aware before he saw that, but we were aware that the audience was really disliking this guy, and we hadn't dimensionalized him in a way that made him feel human. He just felt like a bad guy, and that was on us. And so in between season one and season two, the first thing we did in the writer's room was talk about this character and find ways to make this character not necessarily a likable character, but a relatable character. And so situations like that, or if chemistry isn't working, sometimes you'll hear, for me at least, I'll hear it online before I'll even recognize it myself. Now I'm curious, as fans are figuring out sort of these mysteries quicker and quicker these days, uh, does that make you guys more hesitant to talk in public, whether on Twitter or in interviews? And do you notice that, Eric, when you do interviews, that maybe showrunners are a little bit more tight-lipped? Yeah, I mean, obviously there's uh, shows that are kind of infamous for, for that. Uh, Batman. Uh, and others where uh, they don't want to say anything. I think, you know, it, it, this is something where, you know, the, the, the art of the tease is always mm-hmm. something, but where people want to be very cagey with what they say and maybe you realize someone gave you a big, long answer that sounds great but didn't say anything, but that's not, and that's not disparaging. That's saying to their credit because no one <laughs> wants to give away. And I even find it's, it's a conflict I have with even doing this job sometimes because I love TV and I'm excited by what's to come and it's like, yeah, you tease me, but don't give away the whole thing. You know, it's like I don't want you to just tell me like who the killer is. You know, but uh, if you can kind of say, you know, well, anything they can say about, you know, we're going in exciting places or whatnot in a better way than that uh, <laughs> is great. So I do think you, I think you're seeing people getting a little better at, at that without going too far ahead. What about for you guys? I think if you're the sort of media consumer who um, seeks out interviews with showrunners, um, you need to be prepared to have a certain amount of stuff spoiled for you, or perhaps, you know, and, and this is not a blaming of the victim, but perhaps to maybe be a little bit manipulated by circuitous answers that don't entirely tell you everything you want to know, because our job is to craft a story. And frankly, as the entertainment industrial complex has grown to include things like this panel as part of entertainment content, the game that we wind up playing with you is a game where we're trying to get you interested in the show we want you to watch, while you know, not telling you what the show is about, while keeping up the appearance that we are just nice people having a fun time you know, in a writer's room, and it's awesome. It's almost as fun as the show itself. You know, so so um, you know, you, you, usually, we've really gotten to a point where like, the writers wind up in the writer's room discussing what they can and can't say in interviews, mm-hmm. and shows have social media policies and things like that. So, so even the interview now has become an art form of a supplemental form of storytelling that, that occurs around your show. And I think you know, people who do interviews tailor, not, not the interviewers, but the interviewees, tailor their presentation based on that knowledge. And if they don't, they really need to come into the 21st century because any, any showrunner or showwriter who tells you, well, I didn't realize they were going to ask me about the twist. Yeah. <laughs> the hell have you been, you know? Yeah. Uh, Michael, you touched a bit about uh, on this with uh, Big Little Lies. You know, there are a lot of shows on the air that are based on pre-existing properties. Mm-hmm. And do you think that's harder for them for writers to sort of figure out how do you balance between staying true to the story uh, with you know bringing in a new audience, knowing some people are going to be expecting certain things? Uh, that's a really good question. I think I think every project's probably totally different. I mean, I think some people want to have a literal adaptation from a pre-existing property, and some. I mean, the instinct, which by the way, Sunday we're screening it. Um, <laughs> I gotta remember the time. But um, it's based on a James Patterson book. And uh, he said to me, um, 
you know, basically do what you want with it. Right. And hearing that, for me as a writer, was incredibly liberating because I didn't feel like I had the pressure of having to satisfy the readers of his book or to satisfy him. All of a sudden, it felt like my, uh, my project. Big Little Lies, I heard, is very, very um, close to what the book is like and, and was very loyal to what the book is like. So I would imagine the people who read the book and I didn't and love the book are gonna go in with a different set of expectations when they're watching that show. And maybe when you're making that show, you feel bound to have to satisfy those people as well, which is a big challenge. The, the number of people who have read a best-selling book is usually less yes. than the number of people who will watch the worst episode of the show the book is based on. That's just a fact of the publishing industry, you know? So is that enough to get you to basically betray your source material? I mean, when you look at Game of Thrones, anybody who read a Game of Thrones, right, knows that Ned Stark gets his head chopped mm -hmm. off, right? Um, the, the, Spoiler really? alert. <laughs> I was told Sean Bean was the hero for the whole series. Yeah, it's Sean Bean. I mean, come on. Okay, anyway, so the point being that you don't, you know, like, you have to trust that there's a reason why people like the source material yes. that is beyond, is, as, isn't just about that twist. And what you hopefully do is that the people who are coming in because they like the novel, they will watch it expecting it with a thrill that you're going to do it in an awesome way that makes whatever they imagined when they read it pale in comparison to how you've done it. You know, it's, it, but especially with source material, it's like you don't, you, know, you, you don't throw out the thing that made it popular because you think people are going to, are going to know what the show's about. But I think a really good uh, example of you know, Fargo, the television show, I think did a great job of capturing so much of what made the film fun and unique and, and yet at the same time created its own world uh, based very much on, on that world so that for people who love the movie as I did, I'm able to really enjoy the TV show and, and hold on to what I love about the movie, but also embrace what they're doing on that show week to week. I also noticed in a lot of adaptations these days that uh, they're doing the thing of a slight tweak on what happened in the source material. Now, Walking Dead does this a lot, where it's like someone else gets the death that, you know, it's like they switch right. up who gets a certain specific death, so you, even if you kind of saw it coming, you didn't see it coming. And, and even Game of Thrones, the Red Wedding, like they added one really horrific death that wasn't in the book. So in a way, it was almost like, we know you book readers are waiting for this, but we're still going to do something that even you, you know, won't see coming. No, and it's interesting because I just adapted Midnight Texas, um, which will be on NBC on Mondays starting July 25th. <laughs> um, but By the way, that's that a one, shameless promotion. Yeah, that, and I, <laughs> I was like, he's doing that. Um, Sunday, Sunday, um, guys. But I, I thought of The Red Wedding a lot because I used to watch Game of Thrones with my husband who read the books, I still do. But, um, and every time, like he'd sometimes watch me watch the show. And I'm like, oh, something's gonna happen. And the Red Wedding, he's like, we have to watch it, we have to watch it. I'm like, sure, okay. And then he like almost fell out of the chair during that big moment, which I thought was like, that was awesome because it was true to the book and it gave the book readers a little bit of a surprise in there for them. And it didn't betray the story at all. It actually just made everyone happy, which is fun. And an awful wedding. You know, the, the, the greatest feat of parallel narrative that I've probably seen, and I'm sorry to advocate for the work of somebody who's as politically reprehensible, but uh, I read Ender's Game mm. in the early 90s, and I loved it, and that novel is massively twist-dependent. I mean, it, it literally... Yes. Um, now, it's a very satisfying read if you know the twist, but if you don't know the twist, it literally blows your mind, right? But about 10 years later, Orson Scott Card wrote a book called Ender's Shadow, and it was the story told from the point of view of a slightly smarter kid 
who figured out the twist uh, earlier and knew what was coming. So he wrote that, having already written Ender's Game, writes a parallel novel from the point of view of a character who already knew what was coming, and it is in many ways a superior work because, again, if go buy it at a secondhand bookstore, borrow it from a friend, don't, uh, don't give Orson Scott Card your money, but, um, but, but, but it's a really interesting case study that I think could be, is very illuminating to people who do the kind of work we do because it, it really puts the focus on if you're worried about the twist, you're not worrying about the right things, you know? Yeah, I'm wondering about that. Like, there have been a lot of things that have leaked in advance, obviously. Like we said, people figuring out Westworld, people knowing Derek was going to die on Grey's Anatomy. It felt like that only drew the audience in more, that they wanted to see how it happened. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I mean, look, everybody wants to be part of the game. Everybody wants to be, you know, like, like what, what the reason you go to, you know, like when I was a kid, I would read Starlog magazine religiously and I wanted to know everything about the movies and frankly, I prefer to go into movies pre-spoiled because I want to see how they pull it off, you know? Um, also, because I'm like, I'm such a sucker that I just feel like an idiot. Like, I went to see The Sixth Sense and like, my, my wife at the time was like, what's the matter? And I'm like, why is that doorknob red? Why is he bleeding? And she's like, because he's a ghost, you idiot. <laughs> like, I didn't re- figure out the twist like until 30, 30 to 60 seconds after the twist was revealed, you know? Because So I'm a moron and I feel self-conscious about this, so I want to be pre-spoiled. But part of it is also that like, you know, look, a big part of geek currency and we're really, and, and whether you like the term geek or nerd or fan or whatever, a great part of like being a fan of a show and wanting to know much of a show and coming to places like this is you want to be in communion in a greater communion with the people who make the show because the show speaks to you and because you want to find out where it came from and how it came out of it and all that. So, you know, um, those, those, and so when those things do get out and they, they create more buzz around the show, of course people are going to, because, and some people are going to tune in hoping that it's not true, you know? Monica, I have to imagine that it's kind of fun on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, because it is based off a pre-existing property, but it's decades and decades of comics. Oh, and yeah. you can literally pull from anything. Is that sort of a fun playground to maybe, like Eric said, little twist, stay a step ahead of the audience in that way? I mean... Uh, it's not an enormous playground because it's an enormous studio that's at like parceling out what you can have and what you can't. So a lot of times it would be fun because you'd come up with a story and then it's like, no, you can't have that character, but you can have that one. And you're like, that's not as good. But, um, but so like we would sort of find clever ways around it. Um, I think Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was kind of an interesting exercise because, you know, not to spoil the first season, but, you know, I will. <laughs> you know, Hydra, destroy mm-hmm. S.H.I.E.L.D. We got the job, we sat in the writer's room, and then three months later we're like, okay, the, the organization's going to crash, and we're like, what? <laughs> For reals? But, um, but it sort of animated the story, too, so the feature story informed the TV story, but we couldn't spoil either one. So you guys started tricky. writing the show without knowing the plot of The Winter Soldier? Holy crap. Maybe someone above my pay grade knew, but I didn't know. Um, But in a weird way, to be perfectly honest, that was a show that I think fans came into the show with huge expectations that might have been premised on a movie that was huge that you could never have replicated on a TV show. So in a weird way, working from that twist was actually made our show come alive. Because suddenly it became this, how do you recoup S.H.I.E.L.D. in light of the entire agency falling to pieces? Um, so 
that, you know, I mean, it was fun. <laughs> I think of it like a Project Runway challenge. That's my, like, that's my analogy for making TV. It's like you get, you know, go to the 99 cent store, make me a gown, go. And, um, and you can make an awesome gown, but you have just certain things you have to live, you know, just that's what you're working with, so. Uh, before we turn to fan questions, I wanted to ask each of you, are there any sort of successful twists or moments from other shows or for Eric, any show uh, that you admire? So many. Um. <laughs> I, I don't think you ever get over your first twist. You know, like, like the first one you see that really got you. And, and the one that I remember most vividly was like when I was in college watching the David Mamet movie House of Games which I will not spoil. Um, but that's one of those movies where, like, like I didn't see... I mean, I'm, a, I'm an idiot. I'm a sucker. Don't even... Like, like, you'll probably see it and see it coming. But it's like, Joe Mantegna's a con artist, okay, guys? That's what it is. Yeah. Anyway, so... Um, but, but it's like... Um, you know, so I don't think you forget your first one, and I think that you almost, a great deal of this phenomenon is like, you know, you kind of spend a lot of time chasing the dragon of the first twist that ever got you and hoping that somebody will get you the same way again. And I think that as a narrative storyteller, then, you know, uh, on, on Lost, Damon would tell the story about being a kid and going to, like, this water park and then watching the diver go down, do, doing, like, a stunt dive, but there was, like, a really high dive that nobody would dare, and then a guy from the audience goes, I'll do it! And, it, of course, it's a plant, you know, and that was part of the drama. And that was his first twist, you know? And, like, literally, we talked about this in the writer's room a lot because that was the experience that he was trying to replicate, you know? But I think that once you get into the business of replicating those experiences, it's... It's still, it's pretty difficult to get caught up in it in the same way, you know? Doesn't mean I'm yeah. superior or I know more or whatever. You just get jaded because it's what you see every day, you know? Oh. Mine was 30-something. <laughs> Gary's dad, just like, I felt so much and so deeply and I couldn't sleep that night and I was just, oh, yeah. Um, so, and six feet under, the end of six feet under. So, like, when I feel some, like, honestly, like, plot twists are great, emotional twists that stick with me, those, those are kind of what I dream about doing. I would probably, the first one that I really remember being surprised by was uh, Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker and <laughs> just that revelation. <laughs> Yeah, we had slightly different responses. Um, really? I think so. I think for me, I was more like, what? Like, it was such a, it, it, it echoed on so many different levels that I wasn't even able to emotionally, like, immediately process what it meant. I just was, like, doing all the math, and then I got there. Um, it took me a little longer to, like, figure out. The worst part is that, like, there was no one to talk about it with. Yes. You know, yeah. like, God, I wish I'd had Twitter totally. so I could have gone exactly online right. and been like, I'm so sad, I don't get yeah. it, it can't be. That's very funny, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, the Vader one is probably the first, and as a five-year-old, I would perform that whole scene, both, both roles. Uh, <laughs> my mom would call me out to do it for her friends. Uh, so that was a big one, and then, yeah, the L.A. law, death that no one saw coming. Uh, but I also really appreciate uh, sort of... Genre. You mean Dr. Pulaski walking into the elevator, right? Yeah, I do. Okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, just, yeah, because I, I, I don't know why I watched Shelley Law as a kid, but I did, and then <laughs> when that happened, it was, yeah, just <laughs> such a shock. Uh, but also really, like, sort of genre changing. Uh, we talked a bit about this in IGM, but, um, you know, stealth sci-fi, and, uh, you know, Lost is an example of that. Twin Peaks is an example of that. The opening mystery of Twin Peaks is who killed Laura Palmer, and there's an answer to that, but the answer also involves, like, this is actually a show about interdimensional beings and portals. Yeah. <laughs> 
it's like, yeah, stuff that you never saw coming and even lost, although I guess you could suspect from the beginning this might have an otherworldly answer. It's like, I don't think anyone was like, there'll be time travel by season four. Uh, so I really like, yeah, where shows can almost be like, you know, it's not even the, the genre show you expected it to be when it started. Yeah. Okay, so fan questions. Uh, who has questions? And just wait for a mic to come over if you have a question. Okay. He's coming on over. <laughs> okay, this question's for Monica. You're talking about Midnight Texas, mm-hmm. which I got to see at WonderCon. So I know the twists that you're talking about. Have you already gotten grief over your changes in the characters? A little bit. <laughs> which is why I'm working on not reading Twitter. Um, yeah. But no, I mean, it's an interesting thing because that's one of those situations where casting is a whole different thing. And you might have wanted to cast more like the books, mm-hmm. and then you didn't find that. And then you keep looking until you find someone that embodies, that fills what everyone wants. Well, and I have to tell you, I uh-huh. think it was brilliant because oh, after I read the book after seeing mm-hmm. And I think you did a good job. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Anybody else have some questions? Over here? Don't be afraid, guys. You can ask anything. (laughs) Hey, thank you for the panel. Um, So I was thinking as you were all talking that this all sort of presumes a sort of standard broadcasting TV schedule, right? Mm-hmm. Seasons, weekly episodes, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, you know, as somebody who's been in, in fandom for a really long time um, and knows what a big part of that kind of weekly deconstruction is to fandom, how do you think sort of shifting more towards compressed viewing, dropping a whole season at once, is going to impact these conversations, if at all? I mean, I'll answer first, even just from my perspective covering it, in that it's, you know, it is funny when we think about shows that are huge with our audience, like the Marvel Netflix shows, where it, you know, you can't do everything we normally do. You know, all those speculative pieces, all that. Who is this, you know, anything you do with The Flash, right? Like when The Flash is like, who is Zoom or any of these season long arcs? Well, you can't do that three hours into Daredevil because people will already have watched the six episode by the time you get that article up. so it is interesting that, you know, you just, on the coverage side, you can't even, you know, cover it the same way because it takes away that speculation. I'll let these guys speak to whether they like that as far as the interaction goes. I, I haven't done a show that drops all at once. I've done, you know, I've done cable, uh, basic cable and network. So I haven't really had to face that. But I would think that if I were doing a show that I would approach the writer's room in a very different way and I would try to craft the storytelling in a different way with different pace and different expectations and probably even structure. You know, I mean, if you're doing 22 episodes, you break it down into kind of smaller seasons, and I think I would try to approach that a different way too. Right now I'm working on The Dark Crystal, and, like, um, we have the challenge of making you cry about puppets. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, like we... I mean, it, it obviously, you know, all of the powers of the Jim Henson Creature Shop are going to be brought to bear to making these animatronic creatures emotionally responsive and we have to kind of deal with the challenges of how to create a deeply emotional story that holds 10 hours of so like the the um 
the, the provenance and availability of speculative pieces about our mythology is so far away from what we're thinking about right now. We're literally going, how can we get you cry about the, <laughs> to cry about the turtle raptors from space that, are, that, that came to the planet Thra and split the crystal? And I mean, you know, we got, we got problems, you know? <laughs> so... <laughs> But yep. I do think, I do think oh. those shows have an advantage in a way because they don't have to worry so much about is this too obvious, are we setting things up too much because people won't have weeks and months mm-hmm. to speculate because they'll probably watch it over a weekend. Um, with the existence of social media, it seems like there's so much pressure on showrunners with respect to series finales because um, everyone has an opinion on them. And I'm wondering if you guys could each... Uh, talk about a series finale that blew you away in a good way and a series finale that drove you crazy. The Xena best. <laughs> uh, finale was crazy making and uh, the finale of Star Trek The Next Generation was the, one of the best Star Trek films ever made and you know those are fairly older examples and they both come from syndicated sci-fi but I think that the lesson to take from, from all of them is are you going to honor your characters and give them a send-off that promises what, you know, whether you're doing a serialized show, whether you're doing an anthology show, whether you're doing a case of the week show, whatever. At the end of the day, what, what your audience wants is to get a sense that you have done right by the operating, um, the, 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 um, the, the, the operating center of your character, right. you know? If your character's on a quest for redemption, how does that, that quest end in a way that's satisfying? If your character uh, is in a quest for knowledge, then how do you validate the seven years that Picard and, you know, they're out there solving other people's problems on their spaceship, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and it's one of those things where you, you have to ultimately deliver an emotional punch that is supplemented by plot in a way that um, tells your audience we respected the characters, and therefore, by proxy, we respected you. I think, uh, you know, I will say, yeah, the finale of Dexter was very frustrating. Um, and there's been conflicting reports about how much that might have been a little network mandated, you know, about, like, did they say you can't do certain yeah. things? Um, but uh, one of my all-time favorites is always Angel. I was just having a big conversation about this uh, on Twitter with people, but a, a finale that is both uh, bleak yet hopeful, like the show. Uh, so, kind of what Javi was just saying, yeah, it's like a show that can sum up, you know, what the sort of the whole trip you were just on, because it probably will, there's never going to be a finale for a show that's been on years and years that hits every single point everyone wants. But if you feel like, yeah, this really kind of looked back on everything and thematically touched all the points. I feel like Six Feet Under did the finale of all finales. I think it was the theme of the series without knowing that that was the theme of the series until you realize, holy shit, everyone's going to die. <laughs> and for me, there was like a sort of inevitability to that that I feel like my favorite finales feel like you were building to that even though you didn't know you were building to that. I can't answer the question. I really can't think. Of, I love the six feet under. I can't think of one that disappointed me in a way that really upset me. There were definitely ones that were, you know, not, I mean, like Down Abbey. Uh, I really enjoyed the show. The, uh, you know, when it ended, I was like, all right, it's over. Um, <laughs> the only yeah. way Down Abbey would have been a satisfying finale is if Lady Edith took a flamethrower to that fucking place. <laughs> Yes. What the? Why does he hate Lady Edith? I've did, I'm sorry. I just. I always. But I, why does? 
Julian Fellows hate, hate Lady Edith so much? That, that would definitely would have been a different finale. And a more, a more exciting one, yeah. Um, so as writers and like when you're, when you see the reaction on Twitter or, you know, social media where people have either, when people have figured out like your twist or your plot twist, um, are you, what's your reaction to that? Are you like frustrated or like, ah, like they got it so early or do you kind of like well, enjoy watching them piece it together mm -hmm. and like have fun watching them figure it out? I think my experiences on Lost and then on The Hundred, um, really kind of numbed me to the idea that it's a big deal if somebody figures out your twist. Um, I think that if you don't think that 50,000 sufficiently motivated people, given a, an honest story, like unless you're flat out lying, yes. you know, 50,000 people with like, like college degrees and the ability to use the internet, they're gonna figure it out. They just are. It's, true. it's either aliens, magic, or time travel. <laughs> You know, it just is. And if it's like, who killed Laura Palmer? Well, how many characters are there in the show? Someone had to do it, you know? And they're not gonna bring in, you know, old man Smithers from, from the theme park. So you know what, it's like, it's like at a certain point, the, the only thing that, that really matters is, you know, which is what happened on The 100, did you actually commit a social wrong that, that hurt members of your audience, you know? That's something to take seriously on social mm -hmm. media. They figured out That's my twist. Enough. Gosh, I'm shocked that I'm not smarter than 50,000 people with college degrees <laughs> and access to the internet. If you thought you were, you, you've got bigger issues. You know, like you, you probably should see someone about your narcissistic personality disorder. You know? <laughs> there are also, people watch shows for different reasons. And I think there, yes. there is a demographic of people who watch shows to figure it out. Yeah. And that is their goal. And they're going to be really happy when they do. And they're going to be really unhappy when they don't. Um, and I think a lot of people may know it, they may not know it, they're not trying to guess it, they're going along for the ride and enjoying that. And for me, that's the core audience that I would try to craft a show for. Um, and if people guess it, they're gonna guess it. And sometimes if they figure it out, they're angry at you because it turns out you weren't some superior godlike being, <laughs> you know, and they put all this faith in you and it turns out that no, it was either aliens, magic, or time travel, and they're like, yeah, how but, dare you? But, but also sometimes if they don't figure it out, they're angry at you because they think their idea was better. And you know, they are, yeah. it's like, it should not have the been that guy. And by the way, that usually happens in the writer's room too. Yes. <laughs> what, what Michael was just saying about like, I, I've been trying not to police my fellow fans as much or judge them. Cause there are people, I still, sometimes I don't quite get the perspective of people who I feel like probably watching a show a little bit like, like a math problem, like, you know, and they're like only fixated on that. But at the same time, they're passionately engaged in the show and they're really, right. you know, loving it. So I can't be like, you're, you're not the fan in the right way I am. <laughs> Cause they love it too. Okay. We have time for one more question. Yeah. Well, this is for the for the writers. Um, uh, I mean, the, the critics, not the writer. Um, it's uh, writing about film is completely different, and both of you, all of you have talked about film. Can you talk about how writing for television is so much different, and how you select with so much television out there? How you can keep on top of that? I, I wonder how a television critic can like have time to live or think, <laughs> and, and how you make the decisions on what you choose to write about, because you, there's no way anybody could even watch 
like one one thousand. I no longer live or think, um, <laughs> except about TV. No, it is. It's everyone like the the peak TV thing. It's real. It's a problem. Uh, but it does become you know like, yeah because I cover movies a little bit and it is completely different animal. And TV is still you know the water cooler thing is still there. It's like it's the shared experience, and that's a lot of what we're talking about. Like the engagement and everyone, you know, whether they're trying to get, figure it out or they're just reacting, but it is all, you know, did you see it last night? And yeah. so, yeah, I mean, we can't cover everything and we do try to talk about, okay, what are the shows that are just engaging our audience on that level on the, you know, did you, did you see what happened? Uh, you know, and I, and I don't want to say that's the only shows with value because it's not, uh, but that becomes a lot of like what people are talking about online. There's hugely successful shows. I mean, like I'll give examples like for us, although our audience is very specifically into genre, but it's like, like the NCISs of the world don't traffic on IGN, even though they are like some of the, the most watched shows yes. in the world. It's just the audience doesn't engage in the same way as, you know, uh, a CW show, you know, where they're just like hyper into the, all the serialization and stuff. So it, I think a lot of times you're just seeing, you know, sites like ours and others that are just kind of trying to figure out what is the audience having that really big engagement and what are they can't wait to find out what happens next. And the streaming, that's a whole other conversation, how you deal with it's all up in one day. Well, I want to thank Monica, Javier, Michael, and Eric for joining us today. Thank you guys so much for coming out. Really appreciate it. Enjoy ATX. Now leaving Nerdist.com.